Computer, initialize Holosuite. Welcome to another episode of The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I am one of your hosts, Perry. And I'm your host, David. Tonight we're talking about Season 4, Episode 22, For the Cause. Before we continue, you can find us on Facebook, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. That is correct, and as we say every single week, you should find us and follow us because we're great. We're awesome. We're a great time. And if you listened at all to our 100th episode, that was the super big, long, everything about us and then some episode, you'll know that we really enjoy this show and we have a lot of things we like to cover each and every week. So we try our best to get to it all, but we just can't. So, hey, we're going to still make the shot anyway. Um, this week we are returning back to our regular scheduled programming here with For the Cause. Um, I, I feel like I say this a lot, an interesting episode to say the least, but in this case I feel like it's particularly so because we're dealing definitely with some of the more, you know, shades of gray things involving, you know, uh, Starfleet and the Federation right. and some of the other groups that they are associated with. And then we have a, um, unusual, I will say, B-plot that, um... Yeah, I think we're going to talk about that one first, because it's, it's been in my there, brain. Garrick? Come yeah. on, Garrick, what's going on there? Yeah, <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely going to get into a lot of things tonight, and I hope you enjoy all of that, of course. But before we do, as always, I'd like to check in. David, how has your week been? It's been good. It's been okay. It's been fine. Um, work is uh, a little strange, because this is the Labor Day sale this weekend, and it's always one of the big sales of the year, but... It's this year has also been starting to feel a little funky and like today wasn't nearly as busy as you might want to hope for on a big holiday weekend like this. And so we'll see if uh, things change. But uh, in the meantime, I finished reading Woke in the Furies, the third Altered Carbon book, uh, the Altered Carbon show I mentioned. I've been reading all the books. This is the last uh, one of the three that he wrote. It unfortunately isn't quite as good as I was hoping. Um, there was more in common with the second season of the show in this third book than there was in the second book. The second book only had like a few minor details plucked and brought into the second season, whereas this one, I'd say maybe twenty five percent of the story was uh, like inspired by this this book. But uh, unfortunately, I just don't think that I, I would have some more, some direct critiques for the author if you were ever to want to hear my two cents on anything but uh um, we, we should do that we book, should but. maybe we should do like an after dark where we talk not just about the expanse but then you can tell me about those books i don't think i will actually read them but i have watched the show so i would like to yeah. know, know your take from i'd be from happy there. to it's it's not the first book is is good um i think the first season of the show which was very heavily inspired by the book really and i've said this i think already a million times but the second i'm sorry the, the first season of the show took the first book and really benefited from like improving someone on the plot quite a bit um the second and third books basically the plots are not as interesting the first book is a mystery it's basically a mystery in a sci-fi setting and mysteries are always fun in general 
and the second and third books don't have mysteries that they're dealing with. They're dealing with other things, and it makes it for a harder storytelling. Uh, but anyway, I was going to say that what I'm going to read next uh, in preparation for uh, 9-11's anniversary this year is Fall and Rise by Michael Zukoff. Um, apparently this is a pretty it's like, like the definitive story of what happened during 9-11 from the perspective of the people who were affected by it, you know, the people on the planes and in the towers. Um, so I look forward to that. Uh, just, you know, it, it was a seminal moment in my life. I'm sure you would agree, Perry. You know, it was a, oh, yeah. I remember that day. I was 11 years old. I absolutely remember so. it. I, I remember it. I remember where I was. I was in uh, high school, as a matter of fact. Um, I think it was my freshman year, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I remember, uh, not to take over your entire story there. No, go uh, ahead. Yeah. Um, no, I remember just sitting in um, my English class, and another English teacher ran into the classroom and said, turn on your TV. The World Trade Center has been hit. And we were all like, hit with what? Like, we were stupid kids, you know, hit with what, you know? What's the World Trade Center, and, yeah. Right. And so we turned it on, and we just saw the one building and the smoke and everything, and everybody was just asking, you know, what happened? Like, we did, we caught it so late, you know, and... Um, it took a while of watching and they were saying, you know, a plane hit it. And I was like, oh, you know, it was a terrible accident and all that stuff. And then as we were talking about it, we watched as the other plane flew into the other tower. Yeah. And I remember just being like, no, no way. That's, that's, that's got to be fake. Like, yeah, that's my first thought. That was, that's got to be fake. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, the chaos that ensued from there. I mean, that was you know, one class, and then we had one more class, which was just basically sitting there watching TV the whole time, and then we didn't even make it to the third class. They sent everybody home. Right. So, yeah, yeah. crazy day. Yeah, I remember hearing least. about it from another kid at the lunch table. I was at, like, I had the early lunch of my class. I was in sixth grade, and so it was probably, like, 10 o'clock or so, 10, tomorrow we 10 and 11. Um, that's what I'm thinking, at least, trying to remember back to it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if we went home early, but certainly I remember being home by the afternoon and, like, watching TV and watching the fallout of everything happening. And, like, as an 11-year-old kid, like, that being, like, wow, like, this is something going on and really having a lot of strong opinions for an 11-year-old. You know, a lot of emotions maybe is the better phrase, but um, just, like, you know, intense. But anyway, really looking forward to reading that. My mom read it. She liked it. I feel like it's a, you know, perfect time to read it because it'll be – the anniversary by the time I finish it. Um, so I look forward to telling y'all how, how it is. Uh, again, apparently it's like the definitive book on, on uh, uh, what happens. So, um, yeah, a little more somber subject, but... Uh, yeah, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But then, um, yeah. Yeah, anything new with you? What's going on with you, Perry? Well, I have officially fallen into the colossal, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Time suck. That is the sh the anime show One Piece. And oh, um, okay, I've heard it of is, it, but I don't know it. It's like the never ending anime. Like that's what I, I've, that's what it sounds like. I've like I've I've seen the mangas on the bookshelves, and it's like infinitely long. <laughs> yes, I mean it. Just it never it just never seems to end. I'm in season. I'm gonna say five. I think maybe six i don't know but it's it's interesting because it's kind of a fast 
watch to a certain degree, you know. Um, each episode, you know, is about 20, 25 minutes long. But, of course, every episode features a little bit of a recap before they get into the new material. So you're really watching maybe 20 minutes of new material, you know. Right. And then, of course, you get the inevitable clip show episode and the rehashing and all that other kind of stuff. But, again, there just seems to be a never-ending, you know, journey here to get to this other area where they're trying to get to. So, I find the characters very interesting. I like, um, you have the stupid one, the sword fighter, the doctor, the whomever, you know, like all these different types of, you know, characters right. bumbling around here trying to figure out their, their lives, basically, while they fight off bad guys and make new friends and connections and so forth. But... Um, overall, just to say, I've really enjoyed it. It's like surprisingly so, you know, um, between that and obviously we just finished the fourth book in the Expanse series, giving myself a little bit of a breather there before I pick up, uh, the fifth one. So right. for those of you following along, it's this one right here. Nemesis Games. Uh, yeah, this will be the next one. Number five. We'll start that probably next week, I guess. I don't know uh, if you had a chance to glance inside the book, but do you know the little details? I have, have not. You, so I, have, I have not had a chance to look at anything. I just, I just, I quickly glanced inside because I was curious. Because remember, in this show, this is the season where all of our main characters go their separate ways for a time. Um, and so each of our four main characters are now a point of view character in this book. Nemesis okay. Games. We get Alex. We get Amos. We get Naomi's perspectives, according to what I glanced at. At least I didn't like read anything. Well, good. But, well, good. I think that that was definitely necessary considering, you know, we were branching into complementary characters quite a bit in the other uh, books. So right. I'm glad to see that they've kind of returned to our core cast. Uh, I have not taken a look, but did you happen to glance and see if Alba Sarala had her own, her own <laughs> chapters? I did not? not. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, um, I, I really hope so, too. She, she's I fantastic. mean, Amos meets her know. at the beginning of season five um, when she goes, yeah, he goes yeah. to the moon. Oh yeah, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. When um when Amos goes to the moon, he uh, sees her in the show. So I'm thinking, I'm hoping that Amos and Abasarala interaction should be in there. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but no, I have not taken any other looks into the uh, book or anything <laughs> like that. I've just got it. I'm ready to go on that. Um, again, probably start that next week. Actually, I might even start it on Monday, considering Monday is a holiday, and um, I'll have. The whole day. Look, normally I would be working on Monday, but, um, right. you know, won't. Um, school is out for the kids, of course. They get Monday and Tuesday off, so a four-day weekend for those little nice. disease-carrying blighters. Mm. <laughs> and then, um, you know, as I don't know if you were aware, but there was also that shooting in the Arboretum uh, a oh. couple of days ago. Yeah, oh. so keep an eye out for that. Well, I mean, there's nothing to keep an eye out for at this point. There is... One person was injured. The gunman um, turned the gun on themselves, killed themselves. Um, But yeah, that's been going on these past few days as well. So, um, you know, I knew some people who were in the Arboretum. Everybody that I knew was fine, of course. But it was just very tragic, shocking, of course, whenever there is, you know, gun violence and everything like that. So it just. I drive by the Arboretum every day to work. So, yeah, yeah, I'll have to look into that. So, yeah, just. uh, be aware, and as much as possible, people just be safe when you're out there. But um, yeah, that's essentially been my week working and then trying to get through everything. My um, family's doing well, so we're good. 
Right. Um, but we're not here to talk about any of that. We are here to talk about For the Cause. Um, as we said, an interesting episode. So would you want to give the recap, or do you want me to do it? Oh, I think this is a you episode for sure. <laughs> I will I will take that. I will Let's definitely do it. take that. All right. <laughs> So, this episode starts with us checking in on our favorite station family, the Siskos, and we see a more intimate side of Ben Sisko as he's laying next to um, freighter captain Cassidy Yates, who we talked about, uh, not in the last episode, but the one before that, how we hadn't really seen much of Cassidy, or in particular, the Cassidy and Ben Sisko relationship. Now we see that they are spending time together, spending nights together. They're clearly very, very comfortable. Does Cassie really need her own, her own uh, cabin on the station anymore? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Does she really need it, or is she, you know, yeah? Just how close is she to the station commander? You know, right. So uh, they're, you know, she's obviously trying to get up and get herself going, going to work. She's got meetings and everything else. He is laying in bed, you know. But then we see it flash forward, and he's got his meetings with his staff, and they're letting them know that there is a shipment of Federation grade 12 mass replicators coming to the Cardassians, because the Cardassians, having been devastated by their continued war with the Klingons, um, now need these to help get their um, infrastructure back up and running. Kira's a little bit upset about this because when the Federation came through to help out the Bajorans after the occupation, they only sent two of these types of replicators to them. But Eddington quickly points out that, you know, your Bajor is one planet. The Cardassians have a, you know, basically an empire that they need to, you know, maintain. So the worry is that the Maquis or some other ne'er-do-wells are going to take advantage of this and try to hijack the replicators. So the station is put on tight alert. Um, before the meeting breaks up entirely, Eddington and Odo come to Cisco and say, we've got reason to believe that there is a Maquis smuggler living on board the station. They kind of hem and haw about actually telling Cisco who it is before they finally drop the bomb that they suspect that it is Cassidy. Cisco, of course, flies into a little bit of, you know, his anger kind of, you know, pops up on him a bit. He lets them walk him through their um, their circumstantial evidence as to why they think it's Cassidy. And uh, basically says, we will, we're going to watch. We're not going to take any direct action against her just yet. She is a Federation citizen until proven otherwise. So at this point, we're going to watch. Right. Um, they do begin to discreetly surveil Cassidy and her crew. They try to do a uh, a security check under the guise of a health inspection. Uh, that doesn't go over too well. Um, so she's able to depart the station. But he sends Worf and O'Brien and whomever else on the Defiant to follow her and see where she goes. Right. Instead of making the delivery that she said she was going to, she actually diverts to the Badlands, which we know is this kind of chaotic area of space filled with plasma storms and ion eddies and whatever else that basically makes it very hard for ships to be tracked in this area, which is an ideal location for the Maquis to make secret drops. Right. They do watch her make one of these drops, um, and report back to Cisco that apparently, yes, she did meet with the Maquis ship. She transported over a large portion of her cargo, which, based upon what they can tell, was probably food or medical supplies. Dax tries to soften the blow a little bit. First time we actually see Dax, Dax tries to soften the blow a little bit and say, well, at least, you know, she's not, you know, a gun runner. You know, she's doing food drops, basically. 
Right. Um, but that doesn't really help Cisco at all because again, Cisco is a Starfleet officer, and as we can remember, all the way back in what season one, two, I think he was the one tasked with stopping the Marquis at one point. You know, right. lost his friend uh, because of the Marquis. So, um, the decision is made that in the event that she needs to make another run, they are going to arrest her and the Maquis, the Maquis officers that she meets with. Eddington is kind of on the fence about doing this, basically saying, that's your girlfriend, I don't want to be involved with actually arresting your girlfriend, can I oversee the replicator situation while you go handle that? Cisco understands and agrees. So Cisco takes command of the Defiant, goes out, follows Cassidy. They go back to the Badlands. Um, nothing happens. They're basically in a holding pattern for hours and hours and hours before Odo finally points out something is not right here. This should have, you know, been done. What's going on? They realize that, you know, they're going to have to beam over to Cassidy's ship to figure it out. They do and realize that the actual package has been delivered in the form of. Cisco and much of his senior staff are on the Defiant. Right. So there's no one really at the on the station to stop the Reclamator situation. And this is where we now see who the true Maquis leader is. It's Eddington. Eddington has basically maneuvered everybody to be far away and out of communication with the station. He shoots Kira, locks her in the conference room, deploys the station deputies to actually help him steal the repl- the replicators and by the time the uh, defiant makes it back to the station um he's gone right. he contacts cisco and basically says don't help the cardassians and we'll leave you alone cisco's like yeah right i'm coming after you and right. that's how we end essentially end that story our b story involves garrick with bashir at a spring bomb match in which Kira is playing, but instead of paying attention to the match, Garrick is watching this very young, beautiful Cardassian woman who is none other than Tora Zial, the young, you know, Cardassian refugee, daughter of Ducat, who was rescued from the uh, desert planet where the Breen were making them all be, you know, uh, soldier, uh, slave labor. Right. He keeps watching her. Bashir tries to warn him. He doesn't listen. They end up getting trapped in an elevator together. They kind of do this weird flirting thing where they're both saying, hey, you don't have anything to worry. I'm not going to hurt you. Weirdest flirtation ever. Hey, I'm not going to stab you. Hey, I'm not going to stab you. All right. You know, (laughs) very weird. Cardassians, I guess. Um, They eventually arrange to have this, you know, hot rock date. And Kira finds out about it. She corners Garrick in his shop, presses him up against the wall, basically threatens him, don't go through with it. He decides he's going to anyway. He does. They end up in the holodeck in the Roxana, where they have a yet another heart-to-heart about why they're not actually going to kill each other and lay on the rocks like giant lizards that they are. <laughs> That's essentially that story. There's more to it, but we're obviously going to get into that. But that's essentially the episode. And as always, if you haven't seen it or you want more of the minutiae details, go watch it. Right. It's on Paramount. You can watch all of the treks on Paramount right now. Go watch it. <laughs> but otherwise, do you think that's a pretty accurate enough summation there? I Did think I hit, so. hit enough? All right. Great. Yeah. 
So as I said, I, I we're going to talk about this. We have to start with our B story because okay. wow, <laughs> yes. When when you realized who the girl was and obviously saw the angle they were going with, you know, mutual attraction. What were your what were your first thoughts? Be honest. What did you think? Well, the first thing is that this girl is maybe eighteen. Like I don't know thank if she's you. Even... Yeah. We don't even know how old she is, and I don't think that she's even eighteen. I think they're trying to make us think she's eighteen. Yeah. I don't think that she's eighteen. Well, I mean, the last time we heard about her, which is earlier this season, she'd been I think you said like five years on this prison camp, but she had been not uh, quite a teenager when like she you know, her, her mother was Bajoran, the paramour of Gold Ducat, and he had been sent on this mission to go kill her, basically, because of this weird, you know, you have to kill the shame of whatever. Yes, anyway, hide the shame. Yeah, so, yeah, we've, when we meet her, at the, at the, I think it was this season, right? Like, she's supposed to be a teenager, and if she's aged at all on the station, it it's not been quite a year. So, yeah. Yeah, so she, when we first... Just to do the backtracking, when we first saw her, I believe that she was no older than 12 or 13 when she was in the prison camp. Then, when she was ultimately rescued from the prison camp, she then spends time with Ducat, who has fallen from grace. We don't know how much time had passed between the rescue and now her on the ship with him. And we watched that whole, you know, he goes from captaining a freighter he right. hijacks a Klingon bird of prey, and they're on the bird of prey for a while. Um, she comes with Kira in that mission where they right. got the bird of prey. She brings uh, Zial to the station. So, right. like you said, it hasn't been like five years. It was a few months, right. maybe. Right. And now she's on the station, and she's been on the station, as she says, for about a year. So if she was 12 or 13 then, that means at the most she's 14. Yeah, I'll be generous and say 15. But yeah, (laughs) that's the first question is like, you seem a little young. And I don't know how Cardassians treat, you know, what do they consider themselves adults? Let's just assume that everyone says 18. She seems a bit young. Not only does she seem a bit young, but let, I mean, Garrick is in his at least late 40s, if not 50s. So, right. again, even if, even she, if she is was the 18, daughter. Right. Even if she yeah. was 18, he is still too old for her. Right. She um, is the daughter of his greatest vi- uh, rival in the Cardassian government, and they were both, you know, men. Been men for a long time. So right. They worked young. together at one point. They were junior officers together. They were yeah. up and comers together. So before she was a thought in her father's brain, these two were, you know, wheeling and dealing in Cardassian right. society and stuff. At one point, she even says, you know, my my father said you had my grandfather killed. He's old enough to have known your grandfather? Like. <laughs> And not yeah. only that, but he directly influenced his life, and you yeah. still are like, oh, well, you know, let's uh, lay all these rocks together. Cardassians yeah. are weird. Great yeah. architecture, awesome clothes, <laughs> terrible society <laughs> values, man. They're just... Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it, it feels strange. I mean, I will say this. If outside of the awkwardness of all the age issues, part of me likes the idea of a like romances are fun usually they're usually fun storylines so part of me like likes the idea that garrick is got a crush on someone and he's trying to flirt 
Like the whole I don't intend to hurt you angle is kind of funny because it's exactly how he views everything. So when he says it to her and then she says it to him, like as a flirtation, like way of flirting, maybe it would work with the girl. Like, you know, you're I don't know, in this situation, I'm, you know again, I think that is definitely a societal thing. I don't think that there's well, any yeah. I could ever come up to you and be like, Hey baby, guess what? I don't intend to hurt you. Well, I mean, in this situation, hundred <laughs> percent, that's exactly right. It's societal. It's you know, my point though is, is like, it is kind of funny. You know, you're a, a guy and you're known for having violence in your past, and you go up to a woman and your your first reaction because you're both awkward on each other, being like, "I'm not going to hurt you," and her reaction being like, "Oh, I'm not going to hurt you either," because that's exactly we later find out that's exactly what he thinks. He thinks that she's going to assassinate him in the hollow suite. Right. And the reason I, that Kira really came did. to talk yeah. to him was to talk to him to convince him, him that actually everything. Mm. Yeah, it's all this big, just giant, you know. Leave it, leave it to Quark to yeah sow the seed there. Well, that's he so was funny like, too. Yeah. He's like, ah, that's too complicated. As he right. smirks, maybe that's what she wants you to think. Yeah, you let your guard down. <laughs> the pants are a meter too long. <laughs> now they're a meter too short. Oh, yeah. And now we know there. where. Now we know where that Ferengi gets his uh, stylish clothes from. That um, ornate pattern there, you know, yeah. that, he was, that he was sporting. One of his more famous outfits. Hey, you know, not for nothing, but Garrick seems to be a pretty accomplished tailor. I'm going to need Jake to stop by <laughs> and uh, fix himself because oh, come on. all of this his clothes can... are terrible. I think we can say whose fault that is at this point, don't you think? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, ben Sisko has no sense of style either. He's wearing some terrible clothes in this uh, episode. Uh, mismatched patterns, all the rest of it. It just, yeah, bothersome. Yeah. Yeah. And that, but that's like, that's quintessential just Trek fashion in general. In all the shows, all of their off-duty clothes look horrible no wonder you guys wear your uniforms all the time you don't have any sense of style or function. <laughs> otherwise yeah nothing <laughs> nothing at all yeah uh, i can remember you know in fact uh, captain picard sporting some obscenely short shorts when he went on vacation in risa yeah so man in this episode we'll have to oh that. good lord yes risa was mentioned in this episode our favorite pleasure planet yeah Speaking of which, that's probably a good transition point. Shall we? Finally, to the A story, yeah. the uh, the evolving Cisco uh, relationship and the Cardassian Maquis Klingon struggle. We haven't heard from the heard about the Maquis in a while. This is our first real update as to what's been going on with them. So to recap that story a little bit, you know, the Maquis were obviously a big thorn in the side of both the Federation and the Cardassians for a while. Um, but, but the Cardassians are doing a pretty good job of starting to wipe them out. Now that the Klingons have invaded and they've helped to basically shift the focus of the Cardassian military to the Klingon problem, the Maquis have basically had free reign throughout the demilitarized zone in the Badlands. And they've right. just been striking at Cardassian targets left, right, and center. Right. So... Yeah, they've basically gotten to a point where, as Worf says in the episode, they have finally achieved the ability to drive the Cardassians out of the demilitarized zone permanently. Right. And this demilitarized zone, as we all recall, was actually established in the Next Generation, um, Season 7, I believe, yeah. um, the... when they signed that treaty. Yeah, yep. 
yeah, there's the whole episode where um, they have to help the Indian. They're trying to help Native American group. Like, we need you to abandon the planet and come back to the Federation territory. And the Native Americans are like, we've been kicked off our land so many times. No, we're gonna put up. We're gonna stay here with the Cardassians and take our chances. Um, interesting episode. Interesting uh, point. It was make. an interesting so, episode. Um, I the one that I still don't agree with. Um, yeah, I, I understand what they were trying to do, but when you have the ability to basically gift someone a whole planet, there's very little objection I can think of that would make that not palatable. So, I agree. Yeah. I, I felt like they were making a big mistake. Yeah. Um, it's like you're asking for more trouble, frankly. Yeah. But I get it. Which I mean, we show is actually what happened. I mean, by not leaving and this establishment of the demilitarized zone, it did cause a lot of problems, which is where the Marquis gained kind of their grassroots foundation. Right. So it was a, it was a problem. They did cause a problem. Right. Um. So I, I do like that. I do, I do like that we, if you think about it, you can track the beginnings of the of the Maquis because here was because they didn't exist until that demilitarized zone and that uh, was established via that treaty. Right. And then you know we watched as those problems evolved and these people were fighting for their homes and it became a lasting impact on the structure of the Federation, and now we are seeing it play out once again here on Deep Space Nine, and they're influencing the greater politics of the of the area, and now they've also gained supporters from the Bajorans, because the Bajorans don't like the Cardassians, and fought their own, you know, oppressive war against them, so they right. know what that's like to be the underdog fighting this huge enemy, and of course they have found uh, sympathy there. Right. So they're gaining traction, they're gaining strength, and now the Klingons have swooped in and made an even, you know, uh, uh, more devastating blow against the Cardassians, so a greater opportunity for the Maquis to strike a blow against them, too. So the Maquis are actually doing quite well. Right. And now they just got their hands on 12 CFI industrial replicators from Starfleet. So now they have machines they need to make homes and build reactors and ships and all kinds of things. Yeah. So yeah, they're moving up in there in their threat assessment. Yeah. Yeah. The Marquis are certainly a great gray, uh, a, a, an affiliation that fits in the gray zone. I mean, perfectly. So they are in the demilitarized zone. Cardassia is abusing the treaty the Maquis are having to defend themselves against the Cardassians, but in doing so, they allow the Cardassians the, the, the chance to say that the Maquis are not obeying the treaty that the Federation is supposed to enforce, and the Federation is forced to enforce a treaty for people for whom they no longer have direct control over, and it just it's a great moral tale about the difficulty of borders and, and, and military you know gray areas. Um, I will say though that I, I, I do, <laughs> the way things went down this episode, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like Eddington suddenly revealing himself as the Marquis came out of nowhere and the way he just really? left, he just left, uh, what's her face? Um, sorry. Kira? Uh, not Kira. Shot her? No, no, no. Um, girlfriend. Cassidy. Uh, Cassidy. 
He left Cassie to take all of the fallout. Like, I know she came back to the station of her own volition, but she didn't have to because Odo was not allowed to leave a security detail and all that that Cisco. Well, that was a test. That, that was definitely a test. Cisco was testing her, and he even says so. Well, or she says so, and he doesn't. He certainly doesn't correct her. Well, um, I, he didn't do his do- job as captain by letting her get a chance to prove herself. I well, mean, hey, he I, I get to, it. He was showing he was emotionally dis- I know, I know, but I have, I have critiques for Cisco in this episode, too. <laughs> as oh, a yeah. as a character, as is what he's doing. Um, but yeah, I feel like the Eddington reveal was kind of out of left field. I was fully expecting him to turn out to be a changeling all during the final, like, five minutes. Oh, like, I've... the changelings are... Okay, I can, okay, I can, see, I can see that. Thinking that yes, he was going to be a changeling. I... I but I always changeling. knew I he was a bad idea. guy. I always well, knew he was a bad guy. Even going back, I, I distinctly remember the very first time I ever saw the character of Eddington. And I knew. I was like, that guy right there, he's going to be our 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 villain. At some, and, I, and it actually started yeah. to make me mad. I remember watching during the original run, whenever he wasn't the villain. Or when he did something else. And I was just like, just... Throw him in the brig already. Like, get rid of him. I did not like him. I just didn't like him. I mean, I remember in the episode where I think he showed up, you know, he gets a... a, He he, he sabotages the Defiance cloaking system Mm -hmm. because Sisko had been disobeying the orders of an admiral. And, like, in that episode, he's proving himself to be super loyal to the Federation to the point where he's, you know, obeying a superior officer to his immediate commanding officer... And now it turns out, like, he's a hardcore Maquis operative who gets all, like, his little monologue where he's all pissy about the Federation and the Maquis, I'm like, this comes out of nowhere. Oh, that that, that whole thing, to me, sounded so much like a, a ploy, you know? He's like, yeah. oh, I have no thoughts about them whatsoever. If I'm told to arrest the Maquis, I'll arrest the Maquis. If I'm told to help them, I'll help them. I was like, and he's like, everything, anything else, especially that last part, anything else? is an indulgence. I was like, if what better I'm a villain hiding in plain sight line could there be? There isn't well, one. Now when he said that, I was like... <sighs> For me, now in retrospect, yeah, I get it. For me, I... I, I was thinking about O'Brien in that moment, because O'Brien and... and uh, what, what's happening in that scene for everyone is... Um, Eddington is with O'Brien and Worf on the Defiant, and they are seeing that uh, Cassidy is interacting with the Marquis, and they start having a little argument amongst the three of them, particularly O'Brien and, and Worf, about the the merits of the Marquis's, you know, moral cause. O'Brien is sympathetic. He's saying, look, they're just trying to defend themselves. Worf is like, ah, they're terrorists, and they need to be brought to justice. I would never fall down Worf, to their Worf level. Is never, he's never fun. In these conversations. Yeah. Well, he's the also man little... can't enjoy. He can't just entertain any kind of philosophical whatever. He's just. No. Yes. Well, and I, I was rolling my eyes at Worf because I was like, in that moment, who is calling who terrorists? Because that's the problem. If they're being labeled terrorists, but from their perspective, they're not. They're freedom fighters. So, Worf. Just I want to, Worf. You know, it's it's not necessarily always up to you to say who's a terrorist or not. Which, you know, you can say you're not, but someone else can. Are you going to be the one who just takes the label and runs with my, it, or 
Yeah. Well, and that's my problem with Worf because you know he's always been the one who can recognize an honorable and just cause. And right. regardless of anything else, if the if the, if the cause is just and the cause is honorable, then right. it's worth fighting for. It's worth dying for. Well, that's right. something that we heard plenty of times throughout the entire run of the right. Next Generation. And for Worf to step on board Deep Space Nine after all that time and say, "Up, oh, nope, they're terrorists. The Federation said they're terrorists, so they're terrorists." This bothers me. And I think right. that's one of the things that also stands out in my mind as to why, like, and then Eddington's subpar, well, it's an indulgence, it just, ugh, the whole yeah. conversation was a failure. Just right. all of it. I mean, like, the Chief is trying to have uh, a kind of a philosophical debate here, which, again, is something that we should be used to when watching Star Trek. And the fact that these two other characters are so wholly not engaging and being right. so adamant in this whole I have no opinion, or my opinion is so draconian that there's no other option, really just bothers me. Um, well, the reason editing got away for it from me is because, again, I was paying more attention to the O'Brien Wharf argument, and actually in my own head was like trying to think, like, what do I think about it? So when Eddington was being a wet rag, he's always been a wet rag. <laughs> I was like, he's always he's been just, a wet rag. He's, he has. He's <laughs> just awful. I don't, I, that's one of the things I just, I've never liked him. Right. And, um, yeah, I knew that he was going to be the villain. When it finally re was revealed that he was the Marquis whatever, I was like, of course you are. Yeah. Of course you are. But, again, for me, it was frustrating when he's revealed as the Marquis operative because we've never up to this point ever really seen – we've never seen him do anything that would lead us up until this point to say that that's who he is. I mean, he's again, he's been a wet rag. He was super, you know, he, he again, he sabotaged the Defiant. So he's already proved himself willing to be, you know, subversive. But then I, I was reading, I was trying to remember all that he's been a part of. He's, in one episode, he's one of those that help with the whole, you know, like, there's the whole transporter malfunction. And so they have to, like, keep track of the neural patterns of the people, like Cisco and the others. And so the hollow suite was having to be where they kept them. And, like, he's he helps, like, bring them back. So I feel like he's been a loyal Federation officer this whole time. That's what I'm really getting at. I've never felt like he's not anything other than a, a good Federation yes man. He's, he's been a yes man the whole time. And then to find out that he's actually been this deep deep cover Federation plant, like, I just feel like they well, felt like they needed, yeah, Deep they, cover they, Marquis plant. Yeah, which – I wonder, I wonder why they went that choice. route. Like, I wonder why yeah. it became Eddington. Because you're right. Like, when we first meet Eddington, yes, he's, you know, he's Mr. Died in the Wool. I'm a hardcore Federation Starfleet officer. And then, yeah, like you said, that episode, that was actually a great episode where he he and Odo had to work together to bring our crew back from their hollow sweet misadventure. You know, right. um, he and he worked so hard and so diligent, so it almost won him a few points. And maybe that was the point of that episode was to kind of throw you off of this um, guy who's kind of anti our, our our crew, our heroes that we've come to know already at that point. But um, yeah, I just I don't know. He's he's I've never I've never liked that character, and it's right. not like some of the other more obvious characters who were set up to be instant, you know, foils or villains <laughs> or whatever, and they're easy to identify. You know, he's just one that I just didn't, didn't like. Yeah. And, well, um, yeah. That's, my that's problem is, is I feel like they never, they didn't have this plan for his character. We haven't even seen him in several episodes. I feel like they, they felt like they needed something to happen. And not only yeah. do they do this to Eddington's character, but they also do it to 
to dang it, Cassidy. Cassidy's also suddenly yeah. a Maquis person. And again, it's it's interesting. I think like, as you pointed out as we started this episode, it makes for an interesting story, an interesting episode of, of Deep Space Nine. But man, it feels like <laughs> I find it funny. I was recently just, you know, as we did in our last episode, kind of complaining that they're not tying together all of the major plot points. They're like kind of letting the big kind of plot elements just kind of go away. They're not really dealing with them. And then in this one, <laughs> they like make some big changes. Cassidy, you know, the girlfriend of Cisco is actually a smuggler who's been deceiving him the whole time. Eddington's even worse. He's been a deep plant since he first got there. I was like, I feel like we've got a lot of changes all in one episode. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so I feel like this would be a great time to kind of segue into, uh, you know, bringing back a, a segment they haven't done in a while, our spotlight on the nineties, because this episode was directly inspired by something that occurred in 1995. And right. that would be the Oklahoma city bombing, which right. for those of you who like myself and David, I'm not sure if you were old enough for this one, because I was quite young when this happened. Right. Um, the Oklahoma City bombing is where Timothy McVeigh blew up that um, federal building and he killed a bunch of people, including uh, a lot of children who were in the daycare on the bottom floor in, in the building. Um, this episode was directly inspired by that. In particular, it was just as we were talking about a minute ago. Um, when um, uh, who's, Who is to be considered a terrorist? Because when the initial shock of the bombing and everything in 1995 happened, everyone was just so sure that this was a attack from the Middle East. This was some Middle Eastern enemy that we had that had just, you know, struck a blow against America and so forth, only for us right. to discover that it was actually Timothy McVeigh, this um, American citizen. So... Right. They were trying to, when they were coming up with the episode, they were trying to do something along those lines. Who would our suspicions fall on? Things like that. Ultimately, for it to turn out to be someone that you least expect. Um, I think right. that where we lose the plot on that is with the involvement of Cassidy. Because the point was to make it to where the big reveal of the terrorist being someone that we least suspect was supposed to be Eddington. But Eddington, in this episode, in the lead-up throughout the episode, makes it to where he's kind of obvious. <laughs> Cassidy, would it would have been more devastating if it all ultimately ended up being Cassidy who had arranged the whole thing, not just someone who was duped into leading Ben astray or splitting his focus so that Eddington could get one over on him. Because that's really how she works out. She's not... She's not you know, uh, a Maquis herself, right. but she brokers some deals and trades with them. She's kind of a complicit, you know, individual in all this. And I think right. they did that also because, well, you know, the the compelling storyline of Ben Sisko falling in love and, and starting this new romance was right. one they didn't want to drop. They really liked uh, Penny Johnson Gerald, the woman who plays... Um, uh, Cassidy Yates, right. and she worked well. She had great chemistry with uh, Ben Sisko, with Avery Brooks. You know, so they they clearly worked well together. And I think they didn't want to entirely drop that, but they did want to add a little, you know, little spice, little color to the dynamic of their relationship. You know, and this was a way of them doing that. And then they also cleverly don't have to pay her now because now she's in jail for the next 
two years. So we don't have to see Cassidy uh-huh. for a while, but she can still kind of be there in uh-huh. Cisco's mind. Giving us a little uh, hint things. that she'll come back at some point, are you? <laughs> oh, did I did I mess that up? Was that mild spoiler? And, uh, uh, <laughs> you don't seem all that dropped in there. Spoiler. All that uh, shamed about your uh, your reveal there. No, <laughs> mainly agree? because, like like I said, I like Cassidy. I've always liked Cassidy. I like yeah. um, I like what she does for Ben, and I like you know. Once again, this is you know we were just talking about not in our one hundredth with the episode before that the necessity of having Jennifer die. You know, the mere, even though it was mirror Jennifer, you know, and seeing how Ben had moved on from that, and then the episode was less about showing how much Ben had moved on but also how much Jake had matured and moved on and now in this episode we see them functioning together on a whole other level that you know Ben Jake and Cassidy and there's a lot of familiarity there's a lot of intimacy here and we also see a scene where Cisco seems to recognize that if this turns out that Cassidy is involved with the Maquis, that she's a smuggler, that she's going to get arrested and everything else, that could change his relationship with his son. And so he takes a moment, as Ben is always doing, and I love to see, he takes a moment to tell his son how important their relationship is. Things change. Stuff happens. But this between us is important, and it cannot change. And even though, you know, Jake's a little, you know, nervous because his dad's kind of freaking him out a little bit, understandably, he gets it. Right. Again, a great episode for all of everything else that's going on. It's great the way that it highlights the Cisco family dynamic. And it's handled so well. These They do such a great job with it. For all their other hits and misses and everything else, they do that very well. Right. Yeah, yeah. He, um, again, kisses him on the head. Yeah, the whole arm grabbing his, you know, his hand and then his arm and I think it was like his arm and his hand or whatever. But yeah, saying like, this will never change because he's distressed that his relationship with Cassidy has changed because he now knows that she's a Maquis smuggler. She's been hiding that from him and effectively they've been using him. That's the thing that also I found a little frustrating about it was like, I didn't get the feeling beforehand that Cassidy was anything other than just regular prayer captain. Um, again, it's more exciting to have her be a marquee smuggler. Um, but I just, it, I feel like this episode brought about those changes all at once. Like, I wish there'd been a little bit of lead up again, a two-parter, <laughs> you know, we have a, we have some inklings of something being wrong in one episode. And then in the second episode, we get the reveal, you know, we get the, 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 the breadcrumbs planted that, oh, wait a minute, maybe there's something about Cassidy, maybe something about Eddington that's a little bit more sinister than we knew, and then in part two with the reveal. Um, but, eh, whatever. Can't always ask for everything. Um, but the real thing I want to say, I feel like Cisco should have had, I mean, he's emotionally invested with Cassidy, but I, I, I feel like he should have already known, oh, I'm sorry, let me back up. I do like the fact that when he's confronted by Odo and Eddington, he says, I'm not going to let you just do anything without probable cause. All you have right now is circumstantial evidence. But if you ever have something, use it. You're, you're, you have permission to use, use your information as you see fit as long as it's a legitimate excuse to do whatever it is you need to do. And that's where Odo comes up with, uh, we need to inspect your cargo because there's a viral outbreak on Bajor, etc. A weak excuse. I don't think it really 
flew very well, but okay, whatever. There, there's a legitimate reason to search the cargo. And then... Yeah, what do you say? Timeclean virus. Yeah, but then she immediately calls up Cisco, and by the way, the editing was, it was a little off there, because Cisco had the camera, like, she hits the button, and he answers immediately, like, he already knew she was gonna call, and it's like, wait a minute, I think you're editing here, guys, could use a little work, but anyway, um, but yeah, like, she basically uses him, says, oh, I have to be somewhere on time, I wish that he had called in Kira. I, what I think he should have done is said, okay, Kira you know, is my second in command. That's absolutely I, right. I can't, yeah. I can't trust my judgment here. Kira, I, you either have full authority on this matter and either you mm-hmm. keep me in the loop or don't or something, or at the very least have her in there to give a second opinion. And I feel like Starfleet would have that kind of regulation in place. If a Starfleet if officer... You, if you notice... A lot of this episode, it makes all the decisions between Cisco, Odo, and Eddington. And Everybody else is just following orders, or they're not even there. Yeah, Kira and Dax almost don't even show up. Kira only shows up briefly in a couple scenes, and that's like to get you know shot at, for example. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I, I just feel like Odo dropped the ball here in that yeah. perspective. I feel like he's the one who should have said, "Sir, I, I, I'm concerned yeah. that you're." You're, this is not because I don't trust your judgment. I know you're going to do the honorable thing, but just for your own protection, I feel you should bring in Kira. I and maybe the argument would have been, you know, Kira is more representative of the Bajoran government, and they're implicated with the whole, you know, smuggling here. If this turned out to be smuggling, so maybe she's not the right person to talk to. But anyway, however, this is another example. I just want to say, just admit on my own end, this is an example of me. Wanting my characters, my protagonists, to do the right thing the first time. Oh you know, no! Whenever, whenever you have like that moment where like someone insults you, and then like a, you know an hour later you're like, I should have said this. I should have said that. Like that's so often what I'm thinking about. Like, if, like even O'Brien was like saying, I like the Marquis. Like what I said, I kind of like the Marquis too. Um, so part of it was like Cisco should have been a man and called him Kira and said, I need you to handle this for me. Um, but it wouldn't have it, had the same it, impact. Yeah, it would have solved the problem a little too easily. It's supposed to be an emotional conflict that he has. Um, again, my problem isn't that the conflict exists. It's more that it seemed like it just kind of came up on us really quickly. Because, um, again, I mean, just last time we saw her, she was getting, you know, trying to get on the station. She's having that whole, you know, emotional conflict with Ben of, like, do you want me here or not? Like, she just seemed like a normal person, and that's what I feel like sometimes storylines have a problem doing. Again, this is actually an example for people who listened to the last episode of what I was complaining about in the Dune prequel books that have been written, is they take characters who are supposed to be relatively innocuous, you know, relatively minor, and they promote them into these really complicated storylines where they're doing this, they're doing that, and you hear all about their backstory, and you're like, this character didn't need all that. This character was just supposed to be a normal person. That's why they were there. Is like, well, so a couple of things I just wanted to touch on really quick. You said that you had wished that they had made Eddington a changeling. So this will also go back to some of the things because again, you know, in the early '90s, you know, there were just the beginnings of internet chat rooms and you know forums and things like that. Well, um, actually, that was the rumor going around was that Eddington was a changeling. And uh, the writers had decided to change that um, and to make sure that he was not a changeling. They had other plans for him. 
Um, so that's why he, even though he would have been ideal as a changeling, they decided not to go that route. Also, another thing that I always wondered, Eddington shoots Kira and effectively takes command of the station. Because Kira is obviously Cisco's first officer. However, what about Dax? If Cisco, Worf, Odo, and O'Brien are all on the Defiant, where's Dax? So if Eddington shoots Kira, he can't just assume command without taking out Dax, too. We never see that happen. And when he leaves Lieutenant Reese in command after, you know, he does his thing, why didn't Lieutenant Reese attempt to contact Kira or contact Dax? It doesn't make any sense. So somewhere along the way, everybody forgot, entirely forgot about Dax being on the station and being a commander in her own right. She would be the next in line if Kira goes down. Well, if Warp's not there, she'd be the next in line. Right. Didn't happen. So these are little things that I worry about, I wonder about in their consistency. I right. understand they were trying to just tell a story and get us to certain, you know, points here and there, but there were too many little loose ends like that. Like, you know, if Dax, once Dax realizes that Kira is not responding for whatever right. particular reason, she would have assumed command and she would have stopped Eddington. Right. Or at least slowed him down a bit yeah. until Cisco yeah, and company could have got back. That's a great point. But yeah, we never just, see that. I mean, when you put a station on, you know, no in or out contacts for nine hours as eddington says he does that's a long time like yeah someone would have said wait a minute like this is important yeah so yeah he says the next nine hours right again i just feel like eddington coming out of nowhere being the villain was like like what (laughs) yeah like that, the last part of it, the last part of it, where Eddington's plan really needs to go right. off without a hitch. There are so many errors. He right. shoots Kira and locks her in a room, but he doesn't kill her. He just stuns her, and he says that we're going to be in communications blackout for the next nine hours. So he's depending on this station. No one on the station realizing that they can't talk to right. anyone for nine hours, and there's no explanation. And you've got junior officers running around doing everything. The guy who just said that he was who had, who was in command and giving orders, right. he suddenly stops communicating because he takes his communicator off and gets on board the ship and takes off. So if anybody had any questions and they're trying to funnel him through to Reese, Reese being a junior officer, he would have been inexperienced. He would have right. tried to talk to somebody and if Dax shows up as a senior officer what like there are too many too many questions here and again the nine hour block uh, blockage of time that's a lot of time right. for no one to be like hey right exactly where's the major yeah why um... is this door locked <laughs> no one asked so and what kind of phaser setting did he use that he was yeah, able to exactly. knock her out and she's not going to wake up for uh... nine hours yeah, it, it, it just – and for me, it's like why would Eddington have been on the station for this long and now choose to blow his cover? I mean, don't get me wrong. Replicators like this sounds like they're powerful items. Maybe this is exactly the type of thing you blow your cover for. You know, you can't – Yeah. I mean, I, that's what I always right. took it as. The replicators um, are just too good of a So, yeah, I, I, I understand it. It's just I feel like him being the traitor – of and again, him being a Maquis trader is the one. If he had turned out to be a changeling, if he had been a changeling the whole time, that would have been fine. 
that would have explained a ton of ton of things. But no, he wasn't. He's just a guy. And again, I, I guess I haven't got to this point yet. His little monologue was yeah. At the end, just, we were coming so up to it. We were going to get to it. Yes, go ahead. Cisco go ahead. and the Federation. You Federation won't leave us alone. It's like, dude, you've been a part of the Federation for like two years, as far as we know. Like, I don't know. And for longer, because you made it all the way through the academy, you made it all the way through security training, you were posted right. on other ships before you even got to Deep Space Nine, because they never would have sent you there if you hadn't had a proven track record. So you went through all of right. this just to steal some replicators. And that's what Cisco says. I'm going to drop you in a hole and make right. you right. grow old, yeah. and, and you're going to be wondering if it was Cisco ever worth it. saying all that, you know? for me, just felt... It felt funny because it felt like a little bit of an overreaction at that point because his girlfriend just betrayed him and now his officers betrayed him and this guy just went off on this monologue. Like, I let me get, let me just say just put it this way. I know that I would be emotionally invested in yeah. saying something like, I'm going to throw you in a cell forever, but part of me wishes that Cisco had gone, like, super cold, like, emotionally dead for a bit where he's not um, – like, you know what I'm saying? Where he's, I'm a little bit. I feel like I feel like he got there. Like he he started to he started to rise up a bit. You can see you know the chest puffed out a bit. But then at the end, he tells him, "He's I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna see that you're brought before a court martial that will break you, and then I'm gonna drop you in the middle of a, drop you in a penal colony where you will grow old, and you yes. will wonder if twelve right. replicators was really worth it." And that's how it ends. And I mean, it is it is a colder delivery, but you could tell he was he was seething a bit there. And yeah, so I, I get that, and I, I love it when he does do the whole the ruthless delivery of the threat, which we haven't seen yes. in Cisco for a while. He was right. great at those threats in you know season one and two. We saw him do it a few times, but yeah, <laughs> now we're seeing that right. bit of that fire coming through. He's not letting things go, you know. Um, but yeah. Eddington's speech at the end was just ridiculous. Oh, you're just yeah. you're worse than the Borg. At least they tell you about their simulation. Yeah. And of all people, for him to talk about the Borg too, I was just like, you know what? Now, yeah. I, now I really hate you. Like I, I, I didn't like you before. Now you've crossed the line, and you're lecturing right. about why this gives you right. the right yeah, to exactly. steal and shoot yeah, people it, and that's all where the rest. The Maquis certainly get a little come a little on, bit man. Uppity, where it's like, okay, guys. This is why we have problems with you guys, is because you don't. While I agree, yeah. You just take stuff. You you have you have you took your legitimate cause and you started right. to use it as a reason to hurt other people, right. which we're all taught since you know forever. You don't do that. There are ways in which you can resolve well, your conflict, and, and y'all just. Totally abandoned all of it. Now, well, that's the great granted, irony you know, about the, the whole Cardassians the whole are out there murdering it's the people. The Federation who abandoned you know, but, these colonists. Not that they were trying to assimilate the colonists. They were abandoned by the Federation to the Cardassian predation. That was always the argument. And yeah, and did they? But did they truly abandon them? Because if we go back and we watch the episode where again the demilitarized zone was established. And this whole thing kicks off. The Federation said, 
yes, you lived in this zone. We apologize this is happening. But in order to keep a larger, lasting peace, we need all of you guys right. to relocate. Right. They all said, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to move. And so they said, well, if you, if you stay, that means you are no longer a Federation citizen and you right. will no longer have our resources or protection. And they said, yeah, that's fine. We'll right. take up with these guys who've been murdering us for weeks. We're going to take up with them anyway, because now that we're not a part of you, they won't hate us. Yeah. And the Kardashian said, hold my beer. Right. And proceeded to brutalize them further. And then the Federation still was like, all right, you're not Federation citizens, but you're still human, so we'll try. And that's when uh, his friend, Hudson... Cal Hudson gets roped in, and he's a mediator. Right. He doesn't have any power or authority in the militarized zone, right. but he's trying to work things out, but he ends up getting swayed to their cause and says, screw right. it. If the Federation's not going to help us and support us, which, right. again, exactly. they voluntarily revoked, right. they said, well, screw it. We're just going to take it anyway. Well, wait a minute. No, because they offered, right. they offered them, yep. all of you whole planets for you to settle on. Endless resources at your disposal. We will we will take you there. We will set you up with facilities. We will help you construct homes and schools and factories. We'll do everything to make it as right. easy as possible to move you from where you are, where it's dangerous, right. to over here where it's not. And they all said no. And then when that when they got what they wanted, now all of a sudden it's the Federation's problem. Y'all are worse than the Borg. No. If you go to the Borg and say, you know what, I don't really feel like being assimilated today. Yeah. yeah. Guess you what? Be assimilated. Yeah. Nanoprobes right in your neck. It's like you didn't even say anything. You're still going down. So I, I always hate it when they try to make those kind of analogies because it's like, no, the Federation has given you ample time, opportunity, options, everything you need to right. make whatever transition as easy as possible. Right. The Federation right. flagship came out to get you right. and yeah, move exactly. you. They, yeah, that's exactly and right. And you still his, said his no. speech about like, basically how I hate the Federation. And it's just like... <sighs> yeah. And and you're and they're like, well, we we just want right. to we want to live differently from you. We want to live freely from you. The Federation isn't stopping you. They were just moving you to a planet well, where you wouldn't, I don't know, get bombs dropped on you well, from orbit or have shock troopers show up and murder your people the in the streets or whatever. Are being what the Cardassians by the Klingon doing. invasion. So first off, question is, why aren't the Marquis being affected by the Klingon invasion? Why aren't the Klingons basically also saying, hey, demilitarized zone is our zone as well? So I would think the Marquis, if they're a little bit smart, would be like, "Wait a minute, we gotta, we lost, we we, we lost one enemy but gained another kind of thing." Um, because it splits, it splits the Cardassian tactic by get because what we we end up learning, and it was supposed to actually be in this episode. It's one of those behind the scenes apocrypha things. We end up learning that the Klingons actually started arming the Maquis and any other uh, citizens willing to fight the Cardassians in the demilitarized zone. That's why they were able to also strike such definitive blows suddenly against the Cardassians. By making the Cardassians also have to fight a war on two fronts, gotcha. that was allowing the Car the Klingons to have more and more success. That's why they didn't take them out. I'm sure they totally planned to be like, 
once we handle this Cardassian problem, we will have the combined military forces right. of Klingons and right. Cardassians to go and wipe out yeah, the Marquis. We'll do okay, that later, sense, but actually. right now, the enemy um, is my enemy. But it also shows how short-sighted the Marquis are. <laughs> yeah. Because the Marquis don't care. They don't care. They try to make it sound like they're doing this noble thing to protect their families and homes and everything else. But the simple fact is they don't like Cardassians and they've gotten to the point where now it's not really about protecting their homes. It's about fighting Cardassians. Which is a bummer because there's no happy ending to that storyline, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. There's not. There's absolutely not, and, and you know, and if you watch uh, Voyager, Which I guess by this you really point, know there's not. In season four, um, was at least one uh, season. Yeah, in the right now? the Marquis. Yes, so at this point, uh, yeah, Voyager would have been okay. starting to wrap up season one okay. by now. So yeah, but we find out in season, I think it's season five of Voyager. Ah. The, the fate of the market. Voyager was 1995, so, so January yeah. of 95. Um, yeah, so right. then, yeah, so then, yeah, season oh four boy. here, season one there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that's going to pretty much do it for us on this one. Any final thoughts on uh, our various shades of gray or our favorite... Um, Pedophilia. Uh, By the way, space on that point, Gorek. apparently the actress who played the character, whose name I can't remember at the moment, she did not play the. Yeah, this is her first time playing the character because that other actress is playing her this time, and apparently someone else picks up the role in the future. Interesting little. This was their attempt. I, I, I feel like it was. It was. <laughs> they did this for a couple of reasons. Obviously, the first actress, right. The first character that played, the first actress who played her was a bit young. Then we have this next one who plays her, and while older, still a bit too young. Are you saying young. they realized so it? So now they, they wanted they to skip her ahead so they, even more, so we get a so third a 30 actress. 30-year-old next time? Yeah, they, I think, they, re- yeah, I think they realized it after the fact. <laughs> I think they realized it after the fact, oh, and they're man. like, you know what? Oh, we need man. To, so we need more to of these Garrett uh, romance. This Interesting, quick. huh? <laughs> I will say that I I've always felt that the actress who plays her the third and final wow, incarnation wow. y'all I would hope so. always felt like she was much better looking be than the other. Be making out ones. with anybody. That would, that would be good, so. <laughs> oh man. So, but yeah, it doesn't change the fact that she's still like eighteen. Yeah, and she really should have been going after point. Jake of all people. I think that would have been an interesting point, pairing of Jake and Ducat's daughter. Like, Half human, <laughs> yeah. One quarter now, Bajoran, we'll, one quarter we'll Cardassian, human. one yeah, uh, one half human, and what do you get? Yeah, so yeah, that that offspring would be half human. Yeah, yeah, quarter Bajoran. Yeah, because her her ridges Cardassian. are already fainter than all the like? other Cardassians, and she's got mm-hmm. the nose ridge. And her skin is more, and her skin is more pink, and she's got the prominent nose ridge. So then, throw in a splash of human, man, would she even? Kids, well, she'd probably yeah, still have all of the ridges and everything. But up, yeah, but poor Jake, missing out to Garrick here. <laughs> yeah, but 
Well, well Jake apparently loves show. older women since <laughs> he went after Marta first and then uh, Anaya. All right, all right. We've, we've talked about this one enough. Uh. Man. <laughs> well, all right, then. Uh, this, this, that will definitely do it for us. Um, for this week, of course, uh, all Trek is pretty much done for now as the writer strike continues. Um, I do know that uh, Lower Decks their fourth season they did finish it before the writer's strike so that should be released uh here soon um discovery same goes for their fifth and final season i think that comes out in october um prodigy the show that was on nickelodeon also was canceled but they did finish their second or third season i think it was the third season they did finish it so that's supposed to be released whether or not um prodigy and lower decks comes back at all no one knows because the strike has really kind of just messed up a lot of things. But we do know that Discovery will be ending for sure after the fifth season. Um, other than that, um, you can find us and follow us anywhere that you do the social medias. Um, and you can listen to us anywhere you happen to listen to podcasts. I happen to do it on Spotify. So until next week, take care of yourselves. Thanks, guys. <laughs>